Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 16. In this episode, I talk with Carla McGregor and Sean Ziegenfuse about their advocacy around developmental language disorder, including work on the RADLD, Rattle, campaign, and DLD and Me. We also talk about their research with a focus on functional and educational outcomes for children with DLD. This conversation is one in a five-part series on developmental language disorder, known as DLD, released this week in honor of DLD Awareness Day, which this year is on Friday, October 18th. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Well, welcome Carla and Sean to the See, Hear, Speak podcast. I will start by having you introduce yourselves. Um, my name is Carla McGregor, and I am a senior scientist and the director of the Center for Childhood Deafness, Language, and Learning at Boys Town National Research Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, which is in the U.S. Um, I do research on developmental language disorders, and I do a bit of advocacy work on DLD awareness as well. So my name's Sean Ziegenhues. I'm a speech pathologist and researcher in Australia. Uh, my background is very much in clinical work with um, young kids with developmental language disorder. Uh, and currently I'm undertaking my PhD at Griffith University, looking at the educational needs of school age students with DLD. And of course, I'm very lucky to be involved in Rattled in raising awareness of developmental language disorder. Fantastic, and thank you, Sean. It's you said it was eight a.m. there, and for Carla, it's five p five fifteen ish, and it's yeah. six fifteen. Yes. So we're pulling it all together. Yeah. And it's Monday here, <laughs> but it's Tuesday there for Sean. So we have really worldwide events happening right here. That's right. So you mentioned <laughs> our advocacy, Sean. Uh, both of you mentioned advocacy for DLD. So what led you to advocate for DLD, Sean? Um, I guess I've worked clinically for nearly 10 years um, in the space and really was constantly surprised at how little people knew about um, the condition. Uh, there was, you know, so many heartbreaking conversations with families every week where they were trying to explain to, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles that these kids weren't silly or you know, playing up, that they legitimately had something difficult that was really hard for them to understand. So for me, from very much a personal level, I wanted to really help the, the families of the young people that I worked with. And Carla, what's led you to advocate for DLD? Really two things, I think. So one was that, um, so I've, I've been in the business of conducting research on children with DLD for a very long time now, more than 20 years. And I always have found it very difficult to find the children and young adults who might participate in my research. And that was always really hard for me to reconcile in relation to the fact that 
it's a very prevalent condition. So I thought if it's so prevalent, if it's about 7% of the population, but I can't seem to find any of these people, then it must be that I'm extremely bad at my job or that a lot of these children are going undetected, their problems are going undetected. And that really worried me. And then what kind of sealed the deal for me is a paper that I read by Dorothy Bishop. It was published in 2010 and it was called Which Neurodevelopmental Disorders Get Researched and Why? I think that was the title. Mm -hmm. And that was a very impactful paper for me because what I realized is it's not only that uh, the problems are being under-identified and therefore treated clinically, but there also is a relative lack of research on the problem of DLD relative to, again, how prevalent and impactful it is. So there's certainly a lot of research. It's really great research. Um, we've made lots of progress over the years, but if you look at other difficulties like ADHD and autism that are, um, uh, in the case of autism, not, not as prevalent um, in particular, that's one example. There's a lot more research going on on those populations than on DLD, and I, I really, I came to realize that this is a very broad problem. They aren't getting served clinically to the rate that they should be, and we're not paying enough research attention to them. And I really do think that the one problem feeds the other problem um, in, in a rather downward spiraling kind of way. So that's what really lit a fire under me to make me want to do some advocacy and awareness work. I feel uh, I can really relate to all those reasons. And as myself doing advocacy, one of the things that has struck me is just the difference between advocacy for dyslexia versus DLD. And I study the intersect of those two. And I almost would feel uh, just so nervous when I had to tell a family that their child had language disorder versus dyslexia. Because dyslexia, I could say, okay, your child has dyslexia. And they say, oh, okay, I've heard of that. And I could give them several books to read. There were a lot of feel-good stories. I sent them to the International Dyslexia Association website. There was a family support group. Everything was out there. But in the, you know, and then the next child I would see, I'd have to say, you have developmental language disorder. They're not the same. You know, they co-occur about 50% of the time, but they can happen individually or alone. And when I would tell that family, I just sensed this deep shame that was associated with it because it was foreign and it was confusing and there wasn't really any information out there. I mean, we were just talking on a call, Carla. I used to use those parent articles. There was one written by Mabel. You said you wrote one yourself. And I would take this old binder and I would print off. I would copy because you'd take it out, a three-wing binder. You'd copy it out for the parent. You'd hand it to them. And they would just leave kind of bewildered thinking like, okay, you gave me this handout. It looks legit but there's really nowhere on the web and there's not a legitimacy there and there was no support group and it, it was really heartbreaking. So I think these advocation, the advocacy that we're doing uh, is, is so, could have such a good impact and I'm excited about it. And of course we have DLD Awareness Day coming up October 18th and there have been two big groups and I think I'd like to tell the listeners about them and the first being 
Rattle. And Sean, I thought you could explain a bit about Rattle. And, and then also, Carla, if you could talk a little bit about DLD and me and kind of where that fits within the context of Rattle and how these efforts are being coordinated to bring awareness to DLD October 18th. I know I just put a lot out there, but I'll have you start, Sean, with the, telling us about Rattle and what it is and how you got involved and, and what's going on with Rattle for DLD Awareness Day. Yeah, look, I think um, shout out initially to the founders of Rattled or Rally as it was at the time. I mean, um, standing on the shoulders of giants uh, in everything we do every day is pretty phenomenal. Um, you know, there was this this group of, you know, specialists and researchers who really saw that there was a problem, as you said, with, with advocacy in this space and um, launched this YouTube channel uh, to great success. I think that the it was the right time to be releasing video content. People were really hungry for sharing things on social media. Uh, the, the YouTube videos, for those of you who haven't seen them, are really of a high standard, um, very much um, steeped in evidence-based uh, practice rather than, you know, commentary or opinion. So, you know, they really resonated with a lot of people everywhere. Uh, of course, we had the Catalyze Consortium formed um, through the stewardship of a number, if not, I think, all of the founders of the uh, Rattled uh, or, uh, group. And what that really led to was getting some consistent terminology for uh, those of us out there who were using all of these, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 different terms all around the world. And so what they did was this sort of led to the first DLD Awareness Day in 2017. And what the founders said was that they really felt like they'd set out to achieve what they wanted to achieve uh, and approached the lovely uh, Stephen Parsons uh, in the UK at NAPLIC and said, look, would NAPLIC be interested in taking over this um, group in some way, shape or form? And I still remember the call because um, for those of you who know Stephen, Stephen's an Aussie living in, in the UK and Stephen rang up and said, what do you think? What do you reckon we should do? Is it too late? I think it was about August, um, you know, of 2018. Do you think it's too late to do something for DLD Awareness Day this year? And I said, oh, look, we've got to do something. And very quickly, we had uh, the wonderful Carla uh, and Lisa Archibald came on board, as well as my colleague, uh, Natalie Turner, who's a marketing uh, consultant. Uh, we all kind of rallied together and, and pulled this uh, Awareness Day, the uh, ABCs of DLD together quite quickly and launched our um, website for the first time. And we also started to expand more in our social media platforms. So we'd always had Twitter, Facebook was relatively new, um, but we've now got a massive following on both social media platforms, but the website really has provided a solid base for people to come to and potentially find some solace or information or the help that hopefully they're looking for. So really excited that this is our third DLD Awareness Day on October 18. Um, this year's theme is very much about the people who have DLD. So it's DLD, you and me. Uh, so we've got lots and lots happening, which I'm sure I can talk about in a sec as well. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. 
Carla, how so do I need to follow up on that though? Yeah. I need to follow up on what Sean said because he's being extra modest. Yes, of course. So mm. all of the things he said is all the things he said they are true, but um, I, I think of myself as a very can-do person. But when we decided in August to have a DLD Awareness Day in October, I was kind of doubtful. And it's really Sean who took this on in a major way. He's a superhero superhero. Um, I'd like to see that we've distributed the work a little bit more broadly this year. Um, and, but still he's a superhero. Mm -hmm. So I'm just very thrilled to be part of the rattled group. Um, and really excited about what we accomplished last year and what we're going to accomplish this year. Do you have numbers, Sean, on, or, or just kind of estimate numbers on how many followers we have? Yeah, so we've just hit 4,000 followers on Facebook. We look like we're about to outstrip Twitter, which is pretty amazing uh, given the difference in startup times on both platforms. So we're about four and a bit thousand on Twitter, and we've just, as of yesterday, hit 4,000 followers on Facebook. So, wow. I mean, that's huge. Uh, I'd love to. We've just um, gotten access to some more information on YouTube, so that'll be one thing I will be looking at this week is how many um, views we've had on some of those videos as well, because they're proving to be extremely popular um, still to this day. Wow, that's great. I know I'm gonna show them in a talk on, on Monday, next Monday, a week from now, I show them every time. So that's, you know, I can't believe it's only been a year because Carla, I've been so honored to be a part of a team working on the, the website and distribution of information in North America, dldandme.org. And I remember last year about this time, really trying to launch the website and get it going. So can you tell us about uh, dldandme.org um, and, and what what drove you to start that website and how is it different um, and but yet similar to Rattle? Sure. Um, so I think it was 2017. I did an ASHA presentation. So if you have listeners who don't know ASHA, that's American Speech Language Hearing Association. We have a national meeting every November. And so in 2017, I was at that meeting and I had the good fortune to give a presentation with Sean Redmond from the University of Utah and a wonderful parent. Her name is Jody Oliver and she's, she's a speech language pathologist, but also a parent of a child who has developmental language disorder. And so the three of us joined together to give a talk. And, and I you know, already mentioned uh, the, the paper by Dorothy that kind of motivated me to start thinking really carefully about why these children are getting missed and what we can do about it. And so that was really the impetus for the presentation. The presentation was really well received. I think the time was right for people to hear that message. And it really made a huge difference to have Jody Oliver as part of that presentation because it's so powerful to hear from families of children who have DLD to just kind of share their experiences of what it's really like. Um, in fact, this mother, she's also the mother of a child who has autism, and she was able to talk about her experiences raising both of these children. And of course, there were challenges in raising both of them, but that was kind of the point, is, is it's even more powerful because people know that there can be challenges around caring for a child with autism, but not as much awareness about what challenges are involved in caring for a child with DLD. So I think that was a really powerful moment um, 
for the audience. It certainly was a powerful moment for me. And so after the presentation, we began talking about what could be a fruitful next step. In fact, you were one of the first people we talked to, Tiffany. And so we decided to launch a website. Um, it's called dldandme.org. And our overall purpose is to gather and post evidence-based accessible information for parents. Now, of course, we're really happy for anyone to visit the site, but we're really hoping to write in a way that addresses parents' concerns and that's accessible to them. Um, we really try to think carefully about what topics would be of concern to families so that we are hopefully addressing an important need. So that's what we're up to. It's um, It has a bit of an I'd say North American flavor because some of our posts concern how you would go about making sure your child's rights are respected in the U.S. context of public schools, for example. We felt that was really needed, uh, not that it perhaps is not a message that could be taken, shouldn't be taken internationally, but that's kind of where we are with it. We, um, I'd like to say that we're at this point small but mighty. So we have, I think, 19 or 20 posts with more coming out every month. We have three videos from wonderful people talking about their experiences, people who have DLD. Um, we have, a, a, oh, I don't know, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 followers on Twitter. We just started our Facebook and Instagram like last week. So I think we have three followers. So stay with us on that. But, um, <laughs> I'll link it in yeah. the podcast notes, so we'll there you get go. some more flow. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But that's what we're up to. And and you ask how it interfaces, if it does at all, with Rattled. I, you know, I, I've drawn some contrast. I suppose it, it's um, more geared towards uh, content for parents, especially in North America. Um, it doesn't have that same international focus and flavor as Rattled. Um, I really hope that they both work together. I, I kind of see Rattled as sort of an umbrella for worldwide awareness and advocacy and information sharing. And perhaps there will be many more um, country-specific kinds of resources to develop alongside or under that umbrella in the future. It seemed like this um, advocacy also, Carla, did it coincide with your move from Iowa to Boystown? So you had some funding associated with Boystown that you chose to use for this advocacy work? Yeah, I really can't thank enough the people who are contributing to the website. So um, our content generators, um, I write some content, uh, Tiffany Hogan writes content, Sean Redman, um, Jake Michelson, who's a geneticist at the University of Iowa, Lisa Archibald, Toronto, and Amanda Van Horn at Delaware, all volunteers who are writing content. We're also, I'm happy to announce, going to implement a guest post of the month. And I, I'm not going to uh, give away the surprise because you'll have to wait and see, but we have our two uh, guests first guest post of the month lined up, so there'll be others generating content. And then behind the scenes, Boys Town National Research Hospital has been so generous because they're the ones that are really funding what it takes to design a website and keep it um, up to date and, and accessible. So lots of thanks going out to them. 
And I just have to give you a shout out to Carla, because you're such a generous leader. I mean, incorporating all of us into this amazing effort that uh, you could have done by yourself, but doing it as a team has been such a gift for everyone involved. And I remember going to that presentation, I was sitting in the audience and, and I was thinking as I was listening, I had just been uh, given and so excited uh, to start a new NIH grant studying children with DLD from kindergarten to second grade. And was what was weighing heavily on my mind was making sure that I could find these kids. And as a doctoral student, I worked with Hugh Katz um, on the Iowa study where we looked at the epidemiology, it was an epidemiologic study looking at the prevalence of um, language disorders. And you, know, you mentioned the prevalence being about seven to 9%. But I remember what struck me the most as a student, it was one of those little facts you read and it just stuck in your mind, kind of like you mentioned with uh, Dorothy's paper. It's like it just, it won't get out of your mind. And I remember reading that only about 30% of children identified in kindergarten by the Iowa study. So in that study, you test all children, almost all the children you can get in kindergarten in the state of Iowa, you just test them. And then there was data to see, you know, okay, well, they look like they have, you know, language impairment on a test, but then were they getting services? And only 30% were getting services. And then in that study, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be on the arm of that study where we followed them longitudinally. So they tested in kindergarten, second grade, fourth grade, again, in eighth grade, 10th grade, and 12th grade. And we just consistently found that the children who showed this language disorder in kindergarten, even if they weren't identified, they started to show some real struggles academically later on. And it was so unfortunate that they didn't have those services early and that that weighed on my mind for that grant. So when I heard you all speaking and thinking about this advocacy work, I actually had lunch with Sean after that talk and said, oh, I want to be involved in that. That sounds great. Let's, you know, I'd love to. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll talk to Carla. And it, it kind of came together so organically. And and I'm just so glad that I happened to be in that talk and, and work together. And again, it just really strikes me that it's only really been a year and a half or so, you know, since that time. And it's really moved forward. And it's kind of amazing what's happening across the world and what's planned for October 18th. So, Sean, what are some of those happenings around the world for DLD Awareness Day? So for 2019, we um, prioritised four key areas that we wanted to really hone in on. Uh, the first was establishing a rattled ambassador program. Uh, so we get people all the time saying that they, you know, want to be involved. How can they help? What can they do? Uh, so we thought, well, look, you know, let's let's provide an opportunity for people to get involved. Uh, I, I still remember somebody uh, here in Australia saying to me, I really want something that will get me out of my office, you know, something that will sort of connect me and unite me and make me feel like I'm part of a team or something bigger than myself. Um, so I still remember we floated the rattled ambassador idea and, um, you know, I think Carla and Lisa and um, Stephen and, and Anita Wong at the University of Hong Kong, we all sort of looked at each other and thought, oh, if we could get 50, we'd be really, really pleased. Um, and I think as of this morning, we're very close to achieving 500 <gasps> ambassadors all around the world. Wow. So it's been amazing response. So thank you to everybody who's gotten involved. We've got um, professionals and parents of children with DLD and people with DLD themselves that have all signed up. Uh, we send information out via an e-newsletter as well as um, having a online Facebook group for the ambassadors to connect. It's been phenomenally successful and I really feel like, 
it's going to lead to a huge uh, impact for DLD Awareness Day this year. So that's been amazing. Mm. I got kind of uh, curious other- hearing you say that, Sean. I mean, that just, I was, I knew there were several, but I didn't know there was that many. Congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. That is really exciting. I didn't know we had gotten that high either. That's, wow. that's really cool. Yeah, I think last time I got excited at 400 and then all of a sudden it's just kind of <laughs> whooshed away in the lead up to DLD Awareness Day. So wow. uh, it's been hard to, it's a bit of a moving beast. Um, the sort of two and three ideas that are going together for DLD Awareness Day, and we really want people to get involved, are the concept of tell us your story. And we've given, we really want to put a face on DLD um, this Awareness Day. And we've given people sort of two options really to get involved, one of which is tell their story through a written submission. And so we've got all of these amazing stories that we'll be releasing in the lead up to DLD Awareness Day uh, that people have so graciously given and shared with us to be able to, you know, put on our website and and, uh, share on social media, you know, but perhaps writing isn't everybody's forte. So we've also given the option of you know, option number two being that they are able to do a video submission. And we've just started up a uh, special playlist on the Rattled YouTube channel so people can actually share their own videos and we'll be able to share those across our social media channel really to show, you know, this is this is me, this is, this is who we are and this is how DLD impacts our lives. Um, sometimes that's a big impact and sometimes that, you know, um, hard and sometimes it's great and we've got some amazing, amazing, amazing stories coming through. So I'm really looking forward to being able to share those over the coming couple of weeks uh, in the lead up to DLD Awareness Day. And then the last uh, sort of the the four-prong attack for DLD Awareness Day has probably um, Carla, would you say it was biting up a little bit more than we could chew? Was the uh, translated <laughs> project? I think that's our MO. I think that's just how we do it. <laughs> it's, we, we go go hard, go hard or go home. Um, so we kind of, in the wash up from 2018, we we looked at, we really looked at our analysis on social media. Um, you get lovely reports around who's engaged with your campaign and. Two things were, one, that it was still very much perceived to be a UK-based campaign. So obviously the founders were UK-based, so it was perceived as a bit of a UK-based campaign. But 99% of people who'd engaged in the Rattle Awareness Day, uh, the DLD Awareness Day last year, were English-speaking only, Mm -hmm. which for us was kind of a big aha moment where so much of what we do presumes that English is the main modality um, that people are communicating in, but we're really out there saying that we're the international DLD Awareness Day. So why don't we look at releasing some translated materials and through the um, amazing support of the lovely Anita Wong, who came on board as another international committee member in, I think the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, I think about right, Carla. Um, Anita was able to help step us through a translation process for the very famous Rattle DLD fact sheet. Uh, We have more than 50 volunteer translators working in teams all around the world. Um, And just yesterday, or what would be, I think today still for you, Tiffany and and Carla, um, was International Translation Day and we released 20 translated fact sheets on rattle.org. Uh, so we've got everything from Albanian to Welsh and everything in between. Um, and it's really 
feels like a culmination of such a big project, an ambitious project, but I think it will really um, help people all around the world really connect and share this information in, in a genuine way rather than just in English or just presumed competence, you know, that in English. I think it's going to be massive moving forward and I'm currently finalising our um, posters, so the rattled posters, will also be released in all 20 languages, hopefully in the next day or so. So we've got lots of materials now, hopefully that will help raise awareness, not just in English, but in many other languages. Oh. That's been a huge and hopefully wonderful opportunity. Wow, that's amazing, Sha. I'm so glad, I mean, good on you for moving that forward. I was presenting in May in China and was asked often about, well, do we have DLD here at all? I mean, is it is it just an English phenomenon? Mm -hmm. it, it's not. It's a brain difference, and uh, it's seen across all languages. And so it's going to be amazing to have those fact sheets in different languages and to be able to spread that awareness. And, you know, I have to say, listening to both of you, it seems like this is all you do. It's like DLD awareness. But actually... <laughs> Our listeners might be surprised that this is actually just a tiny, tiny bit of what you do because you each study DLD. Sean, you mentioned you're getting your PhD. Carly, you've been studying DLD for some time. And I wanted us to, th to talk a little bit about you know, what you're studying uh, in terms of DLD. What are some of your findings? How has it informed your clinical practice and advocacy? Because that's really the lion's share of what you spend your time on. I'll let Carla go first because I really feel like when when Stephen said that Carla was joining the committee and I'd spent years yes. reading Carla's research, I was so tickled to be actually working with somebody um, who has such an illustrious career in, in researching DLD. So, Carla, take it away. And I agree, yes. Carla. I'm going to say, standing on the shoulders of giants, Carla was one of my early mentors through ASHA. And I am also just really honored to be a part of your team, Carla. So tell us, take it away. Well, my goodness. Okay, stopping my blushing right here. No one can see me as a podcast. <laughs> um, okay, so I, you know, you you gave us a heads up on this question in advance. So I thought about this a little bit. So so Tiffany said I might ask you, you know, how do your findings inform clinical practice? And I thought, oh heavens, I just hope they do. But um, I can. I can think of two ways that I hope my work uh, might have influenced uh, clinical practice, and that's in helping people to understand that DLD is not just about grammar and not just about little kids. So when I first began my work, um, I did studies on uh, morphosyntax in preschoolers, um, and there was a lot of work on morphosyntactic uh, difficulties in preschoolers who had DLD at that time. And indeed, they, it is a, a rather robust marker of the problem, so it wasn't that that was um, ill-fated work. I think it was very important work, but I think what we didn't pay a lot of attention to at that time were other manifestations of the problem and the extent of which it manifests at, um, at older ages and perhaps manifests differently at older ages. And so a lot of my work has concerned um, how well people with DLD learn new words, uh, remember those words, use those words, so not really questions about grammar. And, you know, the way I've started to think about it is that 
I think early on, yes, uh, at, at the population level, grammar tends to be the bigger problem than learning words. But grammar itself is also more of a closed problem space. So a typical kid going to school has pretty much mastered grammar, but they have many, many, many thousand words left to learn. So I think the same sort of developmental parallel we see in, in people with DLD, the grammatical problems are quite significant early on, but eventually they pretty much get it, but they still have many, 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 many thousands of words to learn. That's a lifelong problem space. So I do think there's, there's um, a place for um, the importance of word learning and its impact on people with DLD um, in our research labs and in our clinics. So that's uh, hopefully one contribution. And then some of my research, certainly not all of it, but uh, some of my more recent research has been on um, young adults, in fact, college students who have DLD, and to see that at even not only that they're older, but that they're so successful in managing their problem that they've made it into university, right? So these are probably the milder cases, but yet these students still face some struggles with academic learning um, that um, at least in part are associated with their DLD. So, uh, so yeah, I guess I hope that people read my work and think it's not only about grammar, it's not only about little kids. Awesome. Sean, what about you? Tell us about your dissertation well, research, I know, Sean. I want to hear all about that. I've never <laughs> had this conversation with you. I want to hear what it's about. Um, well, I, I, I think I should start by saying that in terms of my area of work, uh, work I've actually spent the last 10 years working primarily in a, a school specifically for children with DLD. So I still remember, you know, arriving at this place and thinking, my goodness, I've got a work with teachers and I really don't know anything about working with teachers. Um, so I actually was a little bit crazy as an SLP and decided to go out and get an education degree um, because I really wanted to understand how the education system worked and um, I still remember that my first assignment was a comparative analysis of terminology between speech pathology and education titled What the F is Pedagogical Practice. Um, <laughs> because I really didn't understand what this, this pedagogy word meant. Mm. Um, so it's really led me into focusing a lot of my uh, attention, not just on the education, because we know that children with DLD actually do struggle at school. I think that that's well known now. Um, but what do they actually need to succeed? Uh, so a lot of my work at the moment um, in my PhD is actually, well, what are the educational needs of school-age students with DLD? Uh, and I'm going quite broad. I'm asking everyone, including the young people themselves, well, what do you actually need to succeed at school? Um, because at the moment, it's uh, if you read the literature, it's, it's relatively depressing. You know, nobody's coming out really and saying, this is what kids are doing well at school when they have DLD, or, um, you know, looking at, well, how do you actually feel about school? So there's a lot around the actual educational process that we need to look at, but what I'm really excited about is not just asking the speeches, but also asking the teachers, the, the families, uh, the young people themselves, and really, and really digging deep. Uh, so, I'm particularly interested in that educational journey. Uh, so I'll be focusing on that for the next little bit. But, you know, 
lots of things take my fancy uh, when it comes to research in DLD. So, you know, you never know. There's a lot to cover still. And I know, Carly, you've even done some work, uh, starting some work on outcomes as well, functional outcomes, correct? I'm really interested in functional outcomes right now. And, and I love, Sean, that you're saying that part of your research is focusing on understanding what are some of the strengths, Yes. right? So mm -hmm. I, I think both of those are uh, real areas of potential um, in our research field that we need better functional outcome measures. And we also need more complete profiles. I mean, we, mm. I mean, rightly so, I guess, focus on the weakness because we want to understand the problem. But I, I do think it's, it's healthy to focus on the strengths as well and to understand um, ways in which these uh, children and young adults are resilient as well as having uh, facing challenges. You just said it, Carla. Mm -hmm. I've been so interested in the psychological models of risk and resilience and the work in dyslexia is way ahead in that way. Um, thinking about uh, protective factors and uh, how do, you know, what, how does that heterogeneity of DLD play out? You know, and they talk about it playing out in dyslexia, but I think we can learn a lot from that literature. And it sounds like both of you are moving in that way, which I think is so important. And I wondered, too, also about more qualitative work. It sounds like mm. you're doing some of that, Sean, um, those interviews and trying to think for themes and really uh, talking to those who are working with children with DLD. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're doing we're... a bit of qualitative. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Carla. Tell me. We're doing a bit of qualitative oh. research on um, functional impact as well. We're interviewing parents of children, of first graders who have DLD um, and children uh, who don't, of course, and um, kind of getting at this question of, of uh, how are these children perceived in their families? Uh, what strengths do the parents see in these children? And it's... Um, it's a new type of research for me. I would never say that I'm an expert, I'm quite a novice, but I do have an expert leading me on the team and I'm finding it really fascinating to hear these stories. Absolutely. Uh, as we're um, getting towards the end of the podcast, not quite there, but I do wanna make sure we hit a couple of, of questions. I'm gonna ask three questions. The first one is, for both of you is, in general, what's one take-home point you'd like clinicians to know based on your experiences, both research and clinical? Because I have a lot of clinician listeners here um, that are, I'm sure, thinking about the kids on their caseloads, and they may think be thinking, do they have DLD? Um, you know, with, we talked about the terminology. They're not always called DLD, at least in the U.S. system, often called, you know, developmental delay early on. Um, they can transition to being called speech and language impairment. Um, just language disorder, uh, uh, specific learning disability, lots of different labels. But what is one take-home point you can think if you were talking to a clinician now about DLD? For me, I especially in U.S. schools, because we know that some of these children are still falling through the cracks, um, I think about how they qualify for services and educational supports in U.S. public schools. And by law, there's a big emphasis on educational impact in that qualification decision. And so I, I, I would love for clinicians to keep in mind the great risk that DLD holds for reading disabilities, spelling problems, and math disabilities. 
I've always, I always go back and cite a paper by Young and colleagues in O2, children with DLD are six times more likely than other kids to have a reading disability, six times more likely to have significant spelling problems, and four times more likely to have a math disability. So if it's, if it's educational impact that gets these children qualified for services, it's just there in spades, and I, I would love to, for clinicians to arm themselves with that information so they can fight the good fight. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I, and along that same lines, um, Carly, you know, I've been thinking a lot about screening and working with groups on screening for dyslexia. And I, I really hope the next step is to screen for DLD early on kindergarten um, and to catch these kids. Because like I mentioned in the Tomlin study, 70% of those kids being missed, they wouldn't be missed if we had a screen or they'd be less likely to be missed if they were actually tested. So uh, yes, right on. I think that educational impact is critical. Sean, what do you think? Look, Carl took the words right out of my mouth regarding the impact on education and for clinicians to think about that. I think I've got two, can I, can I have two? Yes, absolutely. On one? One, I think one is that uh, I encourage clinicians not to be afraid of change. I think that um, we as clinicians have been crying out for consistent terminology for decades. Uh, and it's so ironic that as a communication-based you know, profession that we've been so poor in communicating what these children actually have and have difficulties with. So I'd encourage clinicians not to be afraid of the change, but also to really also not be afraid of using terminology. I think that one thing that we tend to be as a helper personality type profession is that we're really nice. I don't think I've ever met a speech pathologist who wasn't <laughs> lovely and kind and wanting the best for their clients. So we tend not to use, well, we tend to at times avoid labels. And I think that in fact, it's not actually about labeling for detrimental purposes. It's actually about labeling to help explain and help find places like Rattled and DLD and me. Because if you don't use terminology, then you can't find the resources to help you. And there's some really active parent groups for DLD, but if you don't know you've got DLD, you're never gonna find them. So don't be afraid. Um, really familiarize yourself with those catalyzed papers. I still refer people back to them weekly. Um, and these are these are speech pathologists working on the floor every day and they're still, you know, getting their head around this change of practice. And we're very fortunate here that Speech Pathology Australia, which is the um, national body here in Australia for speech pathologists, has embraced the term DLD. And there's an amazing group of researchers and specialists who are really supporting um, that change in, in terms. Um, the other thing that I probably really want clinicians to know was to also understand that the, the challenge with the term specific language impairment was there was nothing specific about it. Mm. And in fact, there's going to be many areas that really are going to be impacted. And my um, work has focused a lot on multidisciplinary support of children with DLD. And, you know, why would you hire an occupational therapist for an organisation that supports kids with DLD? Well, in fact, they have a high prevalence of having fine and gross motor difficulties and sensory processing disorders. So there's going to be other aspects beyond language that are going to be impacted for these young people. And I think that because DLD falls very much to a speech pathology domain in terms of diagnosis and treatment, I really would encourage speech pathologists who might be listening to consider the fact that 
just like a number of other conditions, um, such as Down syndrome or ASD, you're probably going to need to build a multidisciplinary team, of course, including the family um, and the person with DLD themselves. So really consider that it is not just for me, in my clinical experience, speech pathology is very rarely enough, but sometimes that's what we're advocating for as a, as a bare minimum. Sean, what's it like in the educational system in Australia? Do you also have this same issue of not using the term DLD in the school system? What, what would a child with DLD likely be diagnosed with in the school system in Australia? We have a decentralised funding system. So each state, despite having a national curriculum, which is a fantastic achievement to have consistent mm -hmm. uh, expectations, we have separate funding. So I'm very fortunate in the state where I live where children with DLD may get some funding, uh, but it would be less than 1% of children in the school system getting funded under that category. Uh, I live an hour and a half away from the border of another state, and in that state, students with DLD don't receive any funding or support wow. um, through the state education system. Uh, in some states, it's two standard deviations below the mean. For some states, it's three standard deviations below the mean. Um, some states and territories would say that it, it doesn't exist or they only fund up to eight years of age. So it's incredibly variable. That's why I feel really passionate about my research because I'd really love for the Australian context to say to decision makers and, you know, policy makers, hey, we've actually got a legitimate problem where 7% approximately of kids coming through the education system either aren't being identified, aren't getting the support, and it's putting a huge strain on the economy and the education system. You know, teachers say to me all the time, I've got this kid and I don't know what to do, or they seem a bit different. Do you think it might be that DLD thing you keep on rattling on about? So, you know, it, 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 I'm hoping that by actually showing that there is an issue with our system that potentially we can actually do something about it. But as Carla knows, I'm the eternal optimist. So, you know, fingers crossed. I like that about you, though. Mm -hmm. I do too. We need that <laughs> eternal optimism because it can feel pretty depressing at times in the trenches. So it's it's good to have that. Um, I awesome. think maybe we've covered this, but I'm not sure. I just want to make sure. I One question I always ask uh, guests is what you're working on now you're most excited about. Do you think we've covered that in this discussion or do you have another um, project or study that you're most excited about that you're working on that we haven't talked about? I feel like I've, I've certainly said enough about my research, but I will say that I'm super excited about the translational research program that we're building at Boys Tile National Research Hospital. We are adding lots of faculty, lots of clinical programs related to expanding research on developmental language disorder and other related neurodevelopmental disorders that affect language learning. So I'm just super excited to be part of that growth and change and I hope it's gonna have an impact. Oh, I bet it will and I, I can't wait to see what you, what you come up with be watching that for sure. Sean, once you finish your doctoral work, you know, we're going to need new scientists. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds fab. Well, I, I need to finish it first. <laughs> so, My, um, I could have trouble convincing you to move from Sydney to Omaha, but not that there's anything wrong with Omaha. It's lovely. Yes. No. 
<laughs> I was going to say, as, wherever my girls are, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, I think that I've covered a lot of what I am currently up to. I guess I, I will put in a little plug that my my PhD, we're about to launch our social media channels. So um, across Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, you'll be able to follow how we're going at DLD Ed Research, so DLD Education Research. Uh, so really I'll be uh, focusing in on that. Uh, I'm excited, I'm hoping, I'm very close to finishing a systematic review looking at educational outcomes of students with DLD. Um, so that's registered with Prospero if anybody's interested in having a bit of a look. Might save them a bit of time hopefully because I think it's been a really interesting experience and I found some really um, fascinating themes that it's interesting you mentioned the young paper, Carla, because there's some very consistent themes coming through um, in this systematic review uh, that will really support, I think, that there is some key areas that, that young people with DLD have difficulties with. But it also demonstrates there's a number of areas in educational research for students with DLD that aren't researched at all. Uh, and, and in fact, that there's a, a big gap in our current educational knowledge about supporting and educating school-aged children with DLD. So um, watch this space and follow along because it'll be a bit of a journey and I'm hoping people will get involved and share because the more we know, the more we can bridge that research to um, practice gap. Well, and the listeners know that uh, everything we talk about in terms of resources on the podcast is found on the podcast website. So everything that we've discussed, all these links I'll put there, and we can even add that, Sean, as it's launched. Uh, we'll oh, add awesome. to our resource so people can come back to it. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast, and that's because I'm an avid reader and study not only language but literacy, and I, I like to ask my guests what their favorite book from childhood is, or now, I do open it up. It doesn't have to be from childhood, but what is, uh, what, can you share with the listeners what's one of your favorite books? I have an answer at the ready because I've thought about this before. Um, a few years ago, a local library, um, they have a podcast and they asked this question. Okay. So I've had to put some thought into this, um, but the book that uh, came to mind then and still I would say was my favorite as a child was The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White. And I think E.B. White's probably more famous for Charlotte's Web, but I really like The Trumpet of the Swan. And so when I was asked about this a few years ago, I tr was trying to remember what I liked so much about it. And so I went back and I read it again. And you know what? It's kind of about augmentative systems. It's kind of like a speech pathology thing oh. because Louis <laughs> the Swan well. can't, um, make the honking noise that he can't trumpet. He's a trumpeter's one, but he can't make that noise. And so his father buys him a trumpet, AKA an augmentative device. So I feel like maybe that was a little bit of the roots of me wanting to be a speech language pathologist. And when did you read that book? How old do you think you were? Oh, I don't know. When would someone, maybe 10, oh, wow. I guess, yeah. The seeds of SLP. Were, I highly recommend it. Wow. People, the seeds of mm. SLP were planted in you very early. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to say, E.B. White is uh, popular in our house because my daughter is just dressed as Fern to go to her, you know, school book week parade. So, you know, there was the 
the spider and, and all in the outfit, you know, as uh, Charlotte, you know, That's Fern awesome. from Charlotte's Web. Oh, yeah. Perfect, perfect. Evie White was amazing. I like everything yeah. he wrote. Oh, I cried so much, though. Oh, that book. <laughs> I mentioned Carla, but I want to read it now. I've read Charlotte's Web, of course. Ooh, it's tearjerker, but fantastic. Sean, what's your favorite book? Oh, look, this is a really tough question. Probably the most challenging you've actually asked, um, <laughs> because there are many. Uh, for me at the moment, I'm very much enjoying uh, the fact that my daughter has just discovered Enid Blyton, um, which is lovely uh, because, you know, being a big Enid Blyton fan as a child, she's just discovered them and it's nice to watch her. But if I was absolutely honest, my favourite book as a child was BFG by Roald Dahl. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, uh, to the point where my eldest daughter is named Sophie um, and my nickname as a child was the BFG because at, you know, 11 or 12 years of age, I was over six foot. So wow. I was a, a, a tall and gangly guy. Um, but what I think I really loved about it and when I reflect on it is that the, the, the wordplay, um, you know, in the literature is so beautiful. Uh, but there's also a lovely quote, and I wish I had it in front of me, uh, where Roald Dahl had had a family member who had had a stroke and talked about the fact that the words don't come easily to me. And it's still, as a speech pathologist, one of my absolute favourite quotes from a, a children's story because um, he talks about the fact that, you know, this this language business isn't easy and it's not something that everybody can too, but it doesn't actually matter because it, we all get there eventually. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of things about the BFG that um, definitely pull on the heartstrings from a childhood memory and something that I enjoy now. Oh, that's fantastic. Those childhood books really do affect us, don't they? Um, and they live kind of deep inside of us. We carry it throughout Absolutely. our day. So thank you for sharing uh, your favorite book. And thank you both for spending time with me uh, today, early morning for you, Sean, and evening for you, Carla, right, to get the word out about DLD Awareness. And this will be released uh, DLD Awareness Week, so listeners will be hearing it uh, during that Yay. week, and, and we'll be sending them to those resources that we mentioned. So thank you so much. Yes, perfect. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting us. It was great. Check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.